Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, tough questions for Alexander Trudeau. You said that you, that you had to sign. Why, why did you have to sign? I signed the contract, but I did not negotiate the agreement. The Prime Minister's brother gets a rough ride at the Ethics Committee as he tries to defend the Foundation's work and as MPs grill him about that $140,000 donation with links to China. We'll show you what went down today. Also has done significant things to strengthen gun control and will continue to do more. Disinviting the Prime Minister from all future ceremonies commemorating the deaths at Montreal's École Polytechnique. We'll speak with the gun control group who says the government's revised ban on assault-style weapons is a betrayal of past promises. And preparing for the coronation of King Charles III, but do Canadians care and will this ceremony be overshadowed by a brotherly feud. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. It is rare to see a Prime Minister testify before a parliamentary committee. It is even more rare to see a Prime Minister's brother to appear. But that is what happened in Ottawa today. The Prime Minister's younger brother, Alexandre Trudeau, discussing the foundation that bears their father's name and the controversial donation made by two Chinese businessmen. I felt that uh, this was a forum at which the truth could be addressed and made clear and doubt cleared up. And so I thought it was important. I knew I would get the attention perhaps necessary to make the important corrections to the record. There was a lot of misinformation going on. There has been from the start. So that was how Mr. Trudeau began his testimony. But things did get more heated as opposition members of the Ethics Committee pressed the Prime Minister's brother, concerned the donation was an attempt by China to gain access and influence to Justin Trudeau. Why would Zhang Bin be at a fundraiser for Justin Trudeau, a cash for access event, even though he is not a citizen of Canada, he's a Chinese national who was unable to donate? Why would he be there? I bet you he wanted a photo with the Prime Minister to, to, to show to his friends. A photo of the Prime But uh, you'd have to ask him. And, you know and, what? And, and I have no and, reason to doubt that this man never tried anything that would look like interference. So I, as far as I'm concerned, he's an honorable man. Nothing that would look like foreign interference. And then two weeks later, less than two weeks later, suddenly a $70,000 check to the Trudeau Foundation. That, w- was, that had started in, you know, the process of that had started in 2014. Uh, and they had wanted to get everything done very quickly at the beginning, as I was saying. They had wanted to do it with l'Université de Montréal. The, tra- the Trudeau Foundation, from his point of view, was an unfortunate add-in. Here's a new prime minister. He's a rich guy. He likes being in f- fancy occasions. Yeah, I just, think he wanted he his photo with him. Suddenly is there at a cash for access. Do you think him. he discussed uh, policy? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure he did. Well, with more, we're now joined by Stephen Chase, senior parliamentary reporter with The Globe and Mail, who has been breaking many of the stories that we have seen regarding China interference. Uh, Stephen, thank you for joining us tonight. Oh, glad to be here. So, you know, I got to start here with the elephant in the room, because here we have Alexander Trudeau going before the Ethics Committee, and one of his opening salvos has to do with The Globe and Mail, pushing back on 
your reporting, the reporting with your paper, saying that it relies on a single source, and he, he says the facts are not true. Well, he came loaded for bear to committee today. He went after us. He went after the, C the CEO who ran the foundation for four and a half years. He went after the Montreal press. Um, I think the best way to deal with this would probably be a public inquiry, right? A public inquiry would get all this out in the open and they could hash through it all. So uh, certainly um, there's lots of questions left to be answered and uh, that's a that's probably the best way to deal with it. Yeah, well, well, certainly a public inquiry is something that we have heard time and time and time again. And at this point, uh, we're waiting for Mr. Johnston to, to essentially make, make a conclusion as to how this goes forward. But you mentioned Pascal Fournier, the, the, the past CEO uh, of, of uh, the, the Trudeau Foundation. And we did hear from her last week before this committee. And, and she essentially uh, said that she left because she was getting pushback on an independent inquiry into this donation. Now, uh, let's pick up on that point, because as, as you said, Alexander Trudeau pushed back on that. I'm wondering how well he did that and whether or not, after hearing from him, this is nothing more than a she said, he said regarding the donation. I still think there's a lot he would have to rebut and would have to answer in order to really effectively push back. I mean, Ms. Fournier ran the place for four and a half years and she was actually given a two-year extension of her contract that would have taken her all the way to 2025. So this was not a woman that the foundation had a problem with. In fact, until now, they thought she did a good job. But we have Mr. Trudeau, come, Mr. Trudeau the Younger, come to the committee today and say that this is all her fault. So, no, I don't think he really made that case properly. She uh, describes a situation where she became increasingly concerned about the source and reasons for this donation from the Chinese benefactors, and the board wouldn't let her conduct an, uh, an independent probe. When we asked, um, when we asked uh, you know, the foundation for comment on this, they've never said a word to us, they've never replied. And now Mr. Trudeau is trying to essentially uh, character assassinate Ms. Fournier, but I think he has to provide more evidence. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, the concern for the opposition is when it comes to this donation, again, given by uh, two Chinese businessmen with now ties, as, as revealed in reporting, with, with the People's Republic of China, uh, the concern is that that donation was meant to buy influence and access with the incoming Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. Uh, but to hear from Alexander Trudeau, no, this was money solely for scholarship, and that never entered the picture. What do you say to that? Well, they, the money was for scholarships, and yes, the money was for a bust of Mr. Uh, of Mr. Trudeau, the senior, and it was for money for the University of Montreal. All those things were laid out. Uh, the, Trudeau, the Trudeau Foundation actually never ended up spending the money, which is um, a, bit, a bit puzzling in this, and, and then they've given most of it back. So uh, it's hard for us to divine the intentions of the donors, except what they said, which was to... Uh, you know, give money in the name of Mr. Trudeau and to celebrate his, his connection to building ties with China. But even back when this was announced back in 2016, it was very clear this was a Chinese soft power effort. It was an organization, a Chinese government-backed uh, organization, which was really attempting to sort of, you know, build up Chinese influence and reputation. It was only this year that we learned, in fact, there was more to it. And as we reported that the Chinese state had effectively said they would reimburse the donors for the money. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, you know, it, we did hear from Morris Rosenberg yesterday, of course, uh, past uh, CEO uh, of the, the Trudeau Foundation. 
and he admitted to, to, to a level of naivete because he says in accepting this money from the donors, he was or believed that they were engaging in some type of soft diplomacy, that uh, by being involved with Chinese donors and the donors seeing what the money was being used for here in Canada, it might foster a greater sense of academic freedom, a greater sense of, of democracy. And today it was interesting to hear uh, Mr. Trudeau essentially express his own doubts when it comes to academic diplomacy. Uh, did that strike you at all? Yeah, he said that uh, we don't think it's changing China. That's why, if I take from what he said today, his testimony is still unfolding as we talk. But the idea was, I don't think it's working, mm -hmm. right? We're not changing China. So it was interesting to him. And also, you know, of course, what we feel of China now officially as policy with the, the, the Asia-Pacific strategy. You know, I, I, as you say, Mr. Trudeau came up here. He answered a lot of questions, I, not really focused on any one. So, so I'm wondering from you, as one that has covered this story from the get-go and have broken so many stories, what questions do you still want Alexander Trudeau to answer regarding those donations? You know, did they do their due diligence on the donors? Did they actually make sure that they knew where the money was coming from? They, he seems to be unconcerned about the fact that a Chinese industry association was, was basically instructing the foundation, as we've reported, and Ms. Fournier has uh, told the MPs last week, was instructing them on where to send the tax receipt, how to fill out the tax receipt, and the, and the receipts were going back to China, and they were being made through a company which is affiliated with this Chinese industry association. So I think, uh, why didn't you conduct more due diligence um, on where the actual source of the money is coming from? Because he seems to accept the fact it came from these men and not, in fact, from the Chinese government. So I'm still a bit skeptical on that. Well, certainly not the end of the story. Uh, Stephen, really appreciate your time tonight. Thank you for that. You're welcome. And that's Stephen Chase with The Globe and Mail. To London now, where preparations are well underway for the coronation of King Charles this weekend. In fact, in the early hours of this morning, there was a full dress rehearsal of the royal procession. It featured hundreds of troops and a peak at Canada's contribution. Five RCMP officers who will ride ahead of the King's Golden Coach, along with members of the Canadian Armed Forces who will march with other soldiers from across the Commonwealth. It will be a day full of pomp and tradition, but also a day of big questions about the current state of the royal family and the monarchy's future in countries like Canada. Well, joining us now is royal commentator and past advisor to the royal family, Bonnie Brownlee. Bonnie, always good to have you on the program. Thank you for joining us. Glad to be with you, Michael. So with the coronation just days away, uh, we know that King Charles was the heir apparent for so long. And we also know that long before his mother's death, he, he, he signaled that he wanted to modernize the monarchy, which I take it will be reflected in the service and the ceremony that we'll see this weekend. Uh, talk to us about this coronation and how it will be different from the coronation that we saw with Queen Elizabeth. Well, first of all, it's a double coronation, right? The king and then the queen, Camilla, will be uh, crowned as well. So that's something we haven't seen in a very long time. Instead of about 8,000 guests, there's 2,000. So uh, I only made the after parties. So, uh, <laughs> but you're also, this is very much a family affair in a very different way. The honorary page boys of which, um, the king's grandson is, so are Camilla's grandsons. They're very much included in everything. So they're bringing together both the families, the Parker Bulls 
uh, and the and the, the the Wales and the Windsors. So it's a different uh, it's a different feeling for people in this one. Um, you know, the, it's it will still remain steeped in tradition, but it will it's supposed to have a bit of a look to the future and the forward um, way that King Charles wants to bring in some sense of modernization. And the fact that Camilla is going to be the queen and not the queen consort is in itself a step into modernization, um, making her, frankly, an equal partner uh, with King Charles uh, and giving her some power and authority in her role as she moves forward. Well, I definitely want to talk about that in a second, but, you know, getting back to, to the ceremony, as you say, steeped in tradition, steeped in history, and really significance. But there are two princes who've been at the center of more recent controversies uh, who will, I believe, will be in attendance. Uh, Prince Harry has confirmed that he will be there to support his father. Uh, Prince Andrew, I believe, is expected to attend as well. I'm wondering what the palace is doing to, to ensure that they, and really the controversies that they've created, do not pull focus away from the coronation itself. You know, they're doing everything they can to bring a sense of civility to the family. Uh, as you know, the royal households tend not to say anything or they're not responding to the issues with Prince Harry. But the king definitely wants that his son there. Um, you know, he's, you know, my sources are telling me that he's quite emotional about the whole issue of what's happened with Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan. So um, he does want them there, and he's trying to do as much as he can in the background. But as, he, as he's also trying to modernize things, that's why the household changes are happening, taking Frogmore away from Prince Harry. He's not a working royal. He doesn't live there. But, you know, doing stuff like this in the public realm, there's nothing easy about any of this. But I would say that King Charles works on it um, every day to find some kind of magical formula that's going to keep this family um, happy. Well, of course, it's not just uh, King Charles. We also know that Prince William uh, has very tense relations right now with his brother. Uh, how might that work out? Will we see anything that would feature Prince William, uh, Catherine, the Princess of Wales, and, and Prince Harry together during the weekend? I don't expect to see that. I know that they're hoping that something can be done, but the understanding is now that Prince Harry will attend the coronation ceremony and then he will leave and fly back to Los Angeles. That's as of today, about two hours ago. So whether that will change, it's a very difficult time for the brothers. Um, you know, Harry did a lot of damage in the comments that he made, especially to Queen Camilla and to uh, his brother families they're just like the rest of us right families have issues and this isn't something you solve easily and you know William has a lot of work to do as the Prince of Wales and for him right now this is a distraction so he really just wants to get this coronation over as as well as they can for his father uh, so that they can really begin the work that they need to do if they want to keep the Commonwealth together. Well, uh, let me pick up on that point, because as, as you very well know, there, there was a recent poll conducted here in Canada. Uh, the vast majority of Canadians do not want to see Charles as King of Canada. The vast majority do not want to see Camilla as Queen. And then there's even the slim majority within Canada who want uh, essentially to end being a constitutional monarchy. Uh, similar debates being had in other parts of the Commonwealth as well. 
I don't know what kind of uh, nod Canada might get this weekend, but how do you think going forward, will the king, will the palace try to meet this challenge? Well, you know, the king is already in discussions. Uh, he's surrounded himself with, uh, you know, some smart advisors and historians, and he's taking a look at what, you know, how do we move forward with the Commonwealth where we know there are countries that are already, you know, telling us that they are leaving. He has to change the narrative. He's already also got a committee going on the monarch's role within the slave trade. So, and that's supposed to come back with some reports uh, for him in the coming months. So once it, the step of getting the coronation, the formality of it over um, is what will really allow him to sort of step into his role. And a lot of the work that he's been doing in the background will start to come forth. But, you know, Canada's had an issue with the monarchy for a long time. We used to be sitting kind of at 50-50 and now it's shifting to more, you know, 60 or 70, you know, 40, 30, uh, not in favor of having a sovereign and a monarchy. It's a constitutional monarchy, it will not be a simple process to eliminate it. But I would say, in some of the political environments that we're seeing in Canada and the United States, anything can happen a lot quicker now um, than they would have 10 years ago because we seem to be able to fight differently uh, in public. So I think we're just going to have to see where this goes. Absolutely. Uh, Bonnie, as I said, always really appreciate you being on the program. Uh, thank you for this. Uh, we'll speak again soon. Take care. Thank you, Michael. Well, let's look at some other stories that we're following for you tonight, starting with the humanitarian crisis unfolding in Sudan and the humanitarian aid announced today by Canada. That means providing food, water, sanitation, and hygiene services. It means preventing and providing medical treatment for survivors of sexual and gender-based violence, as well as other health and protection services. That, of course, was the International Development Minister, Harjit Sajjan, and he says $31 million will go to groups working in Sudan. Another $41 million is meant for South Sudan and the Central African Republic. The UN says more than 100,000 people have fled Sudan for neighboring countries, and more than 300,000 are thought to be displaced inside the country itself, with large crowds in the city of Port Sudan looking for evacuation. It is now day 15 of the Canada Revenue Agency strike, the CRA saying it remains at the table looking for a fair and reasonable agreement for 35,000 workers. But the union is calling the government's latest offer a slap in the face, and leaders say they are ready to make their presence known as Liberals gather in Ottawa for a policy convention this week. Our members are fed up, we're fed up, and our members need to get back to work and serving Canadians. And we're telling the government today that if we do not see a fair offer put on the table today, we will be at the Liberal Party of Canada convention here in Ottawa tomorrow. And heading into that convention, we have new numbers on Liberal fundraising. Elections Canada says the party raised $3.6 million from nearly 31,000 donors in the first three months of 2023. It is the Liberals' best first quarter results since 2019. But Conservatives again led the way in that same time period, raising $8.3 million from nearly 46,000 donors. And as for the NDP, it raised close to $1.3 million from nearly 16,000 donors.
Poly Susuvien is a gun control advocacy group that has within its memberships survivors of the attack that took the lives of 14 young women at the Ecole Polytechnique in Montreal. Now that horrific event is remembered each December the 6th, but this year one notable Canadian has been told he will not be welcomed at commemoration events. And that Canadian is the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, singled out by the group for amending the definition of assault-style weapons in the government's gun bill and for failing, says the group, to fulfill his promise for a comprehensive gun ban in this country. Take a listen to how the Prime Minister responded. Canadians have a clear choice in the next election between a party that has done significant things to strengthen gun control and will continue to do more and a party that wants to form government that wants to weaken gun control. That's what it comes so down how to. Well, for more, we're now joined by Hadi Rathjen, coordinator with Poly Susuvien. Uh, Ms. Rathjen, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, as you heard, the Prime Minister still believes that his party, uh, his government, is making big moves to strengthen gun control measures in this country. Does he deserve any support for uh, sympathizing uh, with your goals, even if it's not everything that you wanted? Well, it's true that Bill C-21 does contain some important measures, and we're hoping they're going to be strengthened because there are some flaws uh, within those measures. Um, but our focus for the past 33 years has been to ban assault weapons. That has been our number one uh, request from the beginning. In the days following the massacre, we started to petition specifically to ban assault weapons. And, uh, and so we've been fighting this fight for 33 years. And it should have been won a long time ago. And it shouldn't be so difficult, especially with... Um, we have three parties in the House of Commons. All three have promised to ban assault weapons, at least in the last two elections. And the Liberals and the Bloc have promised to do it in the last three elections. So if we don't get it now, it will be the end of our uh, end of our fight. Uh, 33 years, I mean, a lot of the parents of the victims are no longer with us. And, uh, and unfortunately, um, for political reasons, uh, they were not able to deliver so far. Now, one of your criticisms uh, has to do with the timeline of this bill and that the assault-style weapons, which would be banned, are weapons that would come to the marketplace after Bill C-21 actually becomes law. Now, this, the Public Safety Minister, Marco Mendicino, he was asked about that, but he points out that the 2020 ban on about 1,500 firearms, a ban brought on by this government, still remains. So, so before or after the passage of C-21, the government is still, he argues, limiting the number of guns available to Canadians. Uh, what do you say to that? Well, it's true that we have a list of banned weapons. So those were the 2020 orders in council um, that banned about, uh, in total, about 1,900 models. The problem since then, we've been saying for three years, is that list is not complete. So as long as there's assault weapons that are still out there, many non, even most non-restricted, so very, uh, you know, you just need a basic uh, possession uh, and acquisition license, like for hunting guns, uh, then they could be purchased by potential mass shooters and used in mass shootings. Uh, our position has always been, for, for this measure to be effective, that we need a total ban. So the idea of what we've been fighting for for three years now since the 2020 OIC is to complete the ban to include all current assault weapons and also to make it easier to prevent new assault weapons from coming on the market. Now, on both these levels, the government has failed. 
uh, they're not touching the, it, you know, and that's what when when they applied the the definition to the current market, they captured about 482 uh, models that were deemed assault weapons. So those will remain uh, legal and even non-restricted, and meaning tens of thousands of assault weapons in the hand, in private hands. And secondly, the definition um, that they chose uh, conceived with. So it's based on, on the designer or the mindset of the designer is very easy to circumvent because who controls what's in the mindset of the designer? It's manufacturers. But as you know, the, the government did try to bring about a more comprehensive list, uh, and that was last year, and it essentially stopped Bill C-21 from going forward. Is it not better to have something instead of nothing? It is in terms of different measures, and that's why uh, we're probably going to keep supporting C21 because it has some measures that, in and of themselves, are good. But the ban on assault weapons, we have not, we don't have a ban on assault weapons. And like, if you just look at the buyback program, which is going to be very expensive, it has to be comprehensive. Otherwise, what's the point? If uh, you know, if if you don't ban all weapons on the market, all assault weapons. Then owners of those that are going to be compensated for their current ones, those that are part of the 1900 uh, that were banned in 2020, all they have to do is take the money, turn around, and buy another assault weapon. So what's the point of doing that? We need a comprehensive ban on assault weapons. That's what most Canadians want. They've been wanting it consistently for, for decades. And now we have three parties that each promised to uh, ban assault weapons. And I have to say... Um, I mean, our take is that the, the Liberal government is, is insisting on maintaining their agreement with the NDP within a minority government, and the NDP is refusing to budge any further uh, with respect to uh, the measure, um, and so sticking to what's on the table now, which is clearly insufficient and ineffective. And uh, and this is it's a tragedy. I mean, this is the end of the fight of the families of the victims of, of the worst mass shooting um, at the time, uh, the, the polytechnic shooting. And it's, it's in terms of our number one demand, it, we're ending in defeat. Uh, and we're going to continue to have, um, Canada's going to be a country that continues to allow assault weapons on the market. So you will still support C-21, but you do not want to see the Prime Minister at the next commemoration ceremony? Well, I mean, the, the there's about 40 members of the family signed a letter to Trudeau in 2021 when he reversed uh, his, his when he broke his promise on the mandatory buyback. Um, and and what happened uh, on Monday was tabled is basically it makes uh, the buyback very ineffective, uh, and uh, and uh, he hasn't delivered on his promise to ban. Uh, assault weapons in Canada, current ones and future ones. And so, uh, you know, the, the families, I mean, we, we don't, uh, how can I say, we don't, we don't, you know, deal in, we don't do politics, we don't play games. If, if Trudeau comes to the com commemorations and tells everybody and looks us in the eye and say he's going to ban assault weapons and we believe him and we support him, um, then, uh, you know, we need to be consistent and, um, and so that's uh, why Natalie Provo, who was uh, injured uh, by, by four bullets uh, at Polytechnic, has reiterated what was in the initial letter. Adi Rathjen, thank you so much for the time tonight. Thanks for having me.
Now, gun control is just one of the many issues we'll be following closely at the Liberal National Convention. It will take place right here, the Shaw Centre in downtown Ottawa, the convention beginning tomorrow night. And the first night will feature a speech from the Prime Minister, and then on Friday it will be Jean Chrétien and the former U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton taking the stage. We will have complete coverage of the convention for you right here on CPAC, so join us beginning tomorrow night. As for tonight's show, we want to say thank you for joining us. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, we thank you for joining Primetime Politics. But do stay with us. L'Essentiel avec Estabéjean is coming up next.